0: Hi, welcome to season three of the a Podcast, where we translate science into sense so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read lengthy journal articles or reports. I'm Danielle Roods, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ace is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started times, the best way to answer a question is by getting the perspective of those most affected by said question. And that is just what Erica Morse and her colleagues did. They wanted to know why military veterans with opioid use disorder who were involved with the legal system did or did not access medications for their opioid use disorder, or OUD. Specifically, they wanted to know What do military veterans with a history of opioid use disorder and legal system involvement think would help improve access to and use of medications for opioid use disorder? This research team spoke with 18 veterans at nine Veterans Health Administration, or VHA, facilities. The veterans were mostly white men who had struggled with OUD for most of their lives and who had tried medications for opioid use disorder. Over two-thirds were most recently involved in the legal system in the past year. For all of them, their legal involvement was directly related to their opioid use. Let's start with what they found. And then if you're interested in how they found it, you can stick around and find out. The veterans in this study identified six strategies to improve access to and use of MOUD. The study authors then discussed each strategy in light of existing research and made recommendations. The first recommendation was that the VHA provide transportation, especially for methadone treatment. As one veteran explained, if you're going to be on methadone or suboxone, you need transportation. If you can't get to the VA, you can't be on those medications. The study team noted that the VHA could offer free shuttles and reduced or free bus passes upon a person's release from incarceration and immediately bring them to health care and other services to improve linkage to care. Veterans also suggested telehealth services as an alternative for unavailable or inconsistent transportation to in-person treatment. The research team noted that while pilot testing suggests telehealth is feasible, many legally involved veterans also experience homelessness and do not have stable addresses where prescriptions can be mailed. Mobile agonist units may help to overcome this burden. VHAs could also build on the expanded telephone and video outreach they started in response to COVID-19 to include screening veterans for OUD and educating them about MOUD during their outreach visit. The second recommendation was for legal agencies to increase access to MOUD during incarceration. As one veteran noted, without getting the necessary treatment in jail, all it did was make me focus on the drug even more. If I would've had the treatment necessary, some methadone or whatnot, then I probably wouldn't have had such a high rate of relapse. The study team noted that the VHA cannot directly improve MOUD availability in these settings because it is currently prohibited from providing healthcare to incarcerated residents. However, VHA staff who conduct outreach in jails and prisons could train veterans on the benefits of MOUD and various resources at their local VHA facilities and in their local communities and prepare them to talk with wavered providers about MOUD upon release. VHA staff could also educate their criminal legal partners on the benefits of MOUD. For their part, the VHA can ensure that all three medications, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone are available at each VHA facility which, while required, is not a current reality. The third suggestion was that the VHA reduce physician turnover. Switching physicians resulted in a change in MOUD dosage, delays in treatment, and exacerbated legal issues. As one veteran said, at times, you get pushed from one provider to the next, almost every other month. So when I go back to court, it looked like I'm not doing as much as I could be sometimes, even though it's completely out of my hands. Another veteran noted there should be some kind of attempt to make that a policy where you're not seeing somebody new every other month because it is very discouraging as a recovering addict because you never get to that point where you feel like you're moving forward in a direction because you have to start over every single time you see a new doctor. One possible remedy the research team suggests is the use of care teams to provide more stability for legal involved veterans receiving MOUD. Even if team members change, veterans may have more consistent treatment over time. They also recommend training care teams on some of the unique aspects of these veterans' treatment, such as court mandates for care or concerns about incarceration. The fourth recommendation was for the VHA to improve physician education to deliver patient-centered treatment. As one veteran noted, overall, half of the doctors I see don't even know what Suboxone is, Overall, the majority of veterans believed that compassionate, patient-centered treatment incorporating individual circumstances and preferences was the most effective way to help veterans. MOUD treatment that veterans preferred varied and was dependent upon previous medication experiences. For instance, one veteran preferred injectable naltrexone because he said it was not addictive, whereas another preferred methadone because of the strict daily regimen. Veterans wanted clinical staff to listen to their treatment preferences and show greater compassion about the challenges of overcoming OUD, including recurrent opioid use during treatment. They recommended educating physicians on MOUD and patient-centered care. The research team noted that the VHA already uses provider-directed marketing and academic detailing to increase receipt of medications for alcohol use disorder— both of which are effective tools to improve MOUD prescribing. The VHA can also consider offering academic detailing to those outside the VHA system, particularly healthcare staff, in legal settings. VHA staff who conduct outreach in legal settings may also benefit from training to improve their own MOUD knowledge and reduce stigma toward these medications. The research team also noted that patient-centered care is already a priority for the VHA. There are ongoing efforts to improve this, but their effectiveness is not yet known. Things like incorporating patient-gathered or patient-generated data with clinical care and using a team-based approach to enhance continuity of care and better engage patients. The research team also noted that although veterans expressed a desire to have their preferences included in treatment decisions, the value of shared decision-making approaches in reducing substance use is mixed. Incongruent treatment goals between patients and physicians pose challenges in delivering patient-centered care, especially when patient goals, such as tapering off long-term MOUD use, may result in a return to opioid use. Patient-centered care for legally involved veterans is further complicated by legal system requirements such as court-mandated treatments. The fifth recommendation was for VHA to improve veteran education about MOUD. As one veteran said, if you take somebody off an opiate, like a pain medication, that is going to live with pain for the rest of their lives, you know that they'll just go get something else. So why not tell them there's a program that can help them? I have never went to the street and been on heroin if I knew that this Suboxone program was available. I'd have been in it years ago. The research team noted that the peer networks and internet searches are valuable tools for locating treatment programs, but misinformation may be distributed via these mechanisms as well. Direct-to-patient promotion of MOUD may be effective at improving veterans' knowledge and use of these medications. Veterans also express the importance of being educated about how a person becomes addicted to opioids, in particular through pain management of military-related injuries. One veteran described, I've had nine surgeries on my left knee. That's how I started getting opioids prescribed. I didn't have to take a pain pill until I had my surgery. And before I knew it, I didn't feel well one day, and my buddy said, you're probably dope sick. And I went, what are you talking about? He gave me a pill, and I felt fine. I was addicted before I even knew what was going on. The research team noted that patients who received a preoperative educational intervention used fewer opioid pills postoperatively than patients who received treatment as usual. Implementation of educational programs and health literacy in relevant treatment settings may help to address gaps in patient knowledge. The sixth suggestion was that the VHA should provide social support opportunities. Veterans expressed a strong preference for peer support strategies for treating OUD, including group therapy in conjunction with MOUD, as one participant said, maybe other veterans could help veterans with OUD." I think personal experiences have a lot more impact than what you read on a pamphlet or medications. They also noted that having someone to talk to who understands the veteran's military experience was helpful. The research team noted that overall peer recovery support programs that focused on substance use can increase their treatment retention, reduce their substance use, and decrease their legal involvement. A study of veterans receiving medications for alcohol use disorder in group settings found that hearing peers' positive experiences with the medications motivated their own treatment engagement. Many self-help groups have historically held negative attitudes toward MOUD, but programs are in development to address this stigma and create respectful MOUD-educated peer groups. Emotional support such as empathy offered through peer recovery support groups may be especially important for veterans who face additional stigma because of their legal history. Online social media may also be an effective form to connect peers and offer referrals to resources and recovery groups and activities. So that's it for the recommendations. If you are a policymaker, provider, or just someone interested in starting or improving an existing MOUD program that includes veterans involved in the criminal legal system, hopefully these recommendations get your wheels spinning. But now, if you're wondering about the process the researchers went through to discover the themes, keep listening. If you're still listening, give yourself a pat on the back, because how a study like this came to its conclusion is directly related to quality, or the quality, of those conclusions. To answer their question, the research team first had to decide who to ask. One consideration when making this decision is how can you get the best or most representative sample? They ultimately recruited 18 veterans from pre-identified Veterans Health Administration or VHA facilities across the United States that were labeled as high-performing, low-performing, increasing, or decreasing facilities. If you're wondering what high or low performing means, it's a label given by the research team to VHA facilities across the country based on whether legally involved veterans received MOUD at higher or lower rates than their non-legally involved counterparts. And if you're wondering what increasing or decreasing means, that is a label assigned by the research team to a site based on whether legally involved veterans received more or less MOUD in 2017 as compared with 2016. If they received more, the facility was considered increasing. If they received less, it was considered decreasing. The research team then took the top 15 facilities in each of the four groups and selected three facilities from each group. In their final site sample, they included 12 unique facilities, strategically selected facilities from urban and rural areas and from the four regions of the United States, Northeast, South, Midwest, and West. Once they had their sites figured out, they turned to recruitment of individuals at each site. They aimed to recruit two legally involved veterans per facility and three staff members per facility who worked with this population, including one Veterans Justice Program staff, one BHA and community substance use disorder treatment provider, and one community criminal legal system staff. They believed this cross-section of staff participants would give them the most in-depth analysis, but things rarely go as planned. The team ended up having two additional decreasing facilities in response to low recruiting rates at the initially selected facilities. Once the site sample was selected, the research team leveraged the help of the VHA Outreach staff at selected facilities to assist with snowball sampling to recruit veterans. This is basically a strategy of go tell your friends about this and ask them to spread the word. They distributed recruitment flyers in person and asked veterans if they could share their contact information with the research team. The research team was unable to determine the response rate or how many of the individuals who heard about the study actually responded because they did not know how many veterans received a flyer or were asked to share their contact information. Veterans were eligible to participate if they were 18 years or older, English-speaking, had a history of opioid use or OUD within the last 10 years and a history of legal involvement defined as having been arrested, in jail, in prison, or in criminal court within the last 10 years, but not incarcerated at the time of the interview. The team used a brief telephone screening prior to the interview to confirm veterans fit the eligibility criteria. The interviews lasted 15 to 60 minutes, either over the phone or in person, a conference room in a VHA research office building. The team collected informed consent prior to the start of each interview, which basically means that the people they were interviewing knew that they were being interviewed for the purposes of research and agreed to that. Only participants and interviewers were present during the interviews. Three research assistants who had no prior relationships with the interviewees conducted the interviews and participants received a $30 check for compensation for completing an interview. So, How did they, the research team, decide what questions to ask? The authors developed an interview guide informed by the Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research, or CFIR, and focused specifically on the three domains. These were intervention characteristics, outer setting, and characteristics of individuals. They asked participants about their general experiences with OUD treatment, their philosophy of addiction treatment, and their legal system involvement. Although used to create the interview guide, the study did not use CFIR to analyze or interpret the interviews, as it did not map on well to the veterans' experiences. To analyze their data, the team digitally audio-recorded the interviews with participants' consent and transcribed and de-identified them prior to uploading them into a qualitative analysis software called Atlas TI. The lead researcher read through each transcript as they were returned from the transcription company. The research team members met regularly throughout the interview process. They determined that their data had not captured all possible themes, but they were unable to recruit additional legally involved veterans in time. So how does one analyze words? The team created a code list prior to analyzing the data. This is called a priori, meaning that they went into the process, looking for specific themes, which are based on prior research done on the question that they are seeking to answer. Then they added codes that emerged while reading through the transcripts. Then they created code groups to combine similar codes to assist with the data organization and development of the analytical framework. Four study team members applied codes to the transcripts, and the lead researcher checked one randomly selected transcript from each team member to ensure consistency in applying the code list. To better see the data, they organized relevant quotes into a spreadsheet that included four code groups that the code analysis team had pre-selected, barriers to MOUD treatment, facilitators to MOUD treatment, participants' needs, preferences, and experiences, and strategies to improve MOUD treatment for each participant. The project manager added salient quotations and summarized content onto the matrix. Coders and other team members not involved in coding used the matrix to discuss themes and explore connections between individual participants and cross-interview concepts. The study did not ask participants to provide feedback on the findings. Ultimately, the study did not achieve the original goal of 24 participants, only three participants were women, and there was limited racial and ethnic diversity in the sample. With more interviews and greater participant diversity, they may have found more themes. They also did not find contradictory comments among the themes in the study, possibly due to a sample that was made up primarily of white men. And finally, legally involved veterans who did or cannot use VHA health care may not express the same strategies to overcome barriers that the veterans in this study described. We hope this look into how the sausage is made helps illustrate the how. How are decisions made when doing science and how those decisions might impact our findings? Regardless of its limitations, the study provides good insight into veterans' perceptions of barriers for connecting with MOUD. Its limitations should also inform what we do with this information, and the study authors tried to put the recommendations in the context of current research and possible missing voices. If you are doing science, we hope this sparks some ideas regarding how you might expand on our current knowledge. Who knows? Maybe one day you'll stumble across a podcast of your own study. That wraps another episode of the ACET podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced it, where we translate science into sense. Also, remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACETIT is part of the NIDA funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. You can find ACETIT on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, really anywhere that you'd normally find podcasts. Tune in again for more science and more sense with AceTit.